Well, that song certainly expresses the situation for all of us, uh, how much we need the Lord, and uh, that will be the theme of this passage today. We're taking Father's Day uh, to step away from our study in Romans. I plan to be back there and continue in chapter 13 next Sunday. I invite you to open to Exodus chapter 34. And I want you to picture a person living in a fallen world, facing temptation every day. That's not so hard to imagine, isn't it? Is it really? I mean, that's you. That's all of us. And it doesn't matter how old you are, Uh, It doesn't matter the circumstances in your life, that is what life is like. Now let's say that one day you decide to give in to temptation and you do something that you know God forbids. That's not too hard to imagine either. Sadly, we have lots of options available Each of us, within the limits of our own condition, uh, lots of ways that Satan tempts, and lots of times that we make the wrong choice. Now, let's say you feel very guilty about that, but that you choose not to repent and ask for God's forgiveness. Whatever your relationship with God might be, including the possibility that there are some here who have no relationship with God, at that very moment, you would be experiencing a very important biblical reality. That is that the corruption of our sinful choices prevents fellowship with God. You see, that introduces the sort of odd situation of having the possibility of a relationship with God without fellowship with that God. That's what happened to God's people in these uh, chapters of Exodus, in fact, even leading up to our chapter, the verses we're looking at today. Those chapters record God's people making the fatal choice, fatal for thousands of them, to worship a golden calf instead of worshiping God. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. That's a really big sin. Is that really representative of the kind of things that can happen to us every day? Well, the reality there is that scripture tells us that every sin is idolatry. Every sin places someone or something else in the place that only God deserves. So essentially, that's what God's people were doing here in Exodus, something else in place of God. And in 
chapter 33, the first four verses are very instructive for us. In those verses, God pronounces his verdict in response to the choice of idolatry, the choice of sin. If you want to even uh, turn back to chapter 33, let's glance at these uh, few verses at the beginning of that chapter. Here God says that he would still fulfill his promises. He describes those in verses 1 and 2. Even though there's no fellowship, he still fulfills his promises. Well, that's, that's who God is. He can't be less than himself. He's going to do what he says he will do. And in that case, it meant that, uh, that he would make sure that they safely arrive and get situated in their place in the land of Canaan. To get them there, though, he would send an angel, which means he would not personally go himself. That's all verse 3. Right, as you kind of negotiate that in your mind, all right, we still get everything God promised. It's just without the personal presence of God. Does that seem like something that's doable to you? Could you tolerate that? That would be okay. Well, that's a very serious miscalculation. On this occasion, God's people interpreted it correctly. As it says in verse 4, they understood that would be a disaster. You see, it would be getting them to the place that God promised, and even in this case, defeating the enemies that stood in their way. But after that, they're on their own. Now you put that alongside the song we just heard. I need thee every hour. Okay, that's the prospect of a lot of hours without God's help. You see, that's what's at stake when a sinful choice prevents fellowship with that God. Sin is a disaster for every person today as well. And that leaves us wondering, well, what do we do about that? Uh, Of course, the answer is what has been missing so far. And it's our passage today that provides that. And this all comes by the arrangement of God himself. This isn't God's people figuring out what to do. This is them just listening to God and realizing what they have to do. Because God is very interested in restoring that fellowship. Here's how that can work then. The Lord offers personal fellowship, but you must decide to walk with him. Let's get started in our passage today. The Lord himself here is providing this access to fellowship. And and let's just make it clear at the beginning, this still applies to everybody, anybody. Someone who has 
a relationship with God and that fellowship is disrupted, you can restore it. But it still works the same way for someone who's never had a relationship with God. You've never trusted Christ as your savior. You don't even know what it means to walk with him by personal experience. But God offers fellowship to you as well. The Lord provides this access to fellowship. And it is based on a covenant relationship. You can't have fellowship without a relationship with God. And so he invites you to come. We see that in the very first verse. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. You know, Moses broke the tablets, but it was God's people in the valley while he was on Mount Sinai that broke the covenant. God is ready to replace those tablets. And, and he does so because God's word is central to this process. We learn about the process from his word. We have access to fellowship with him through his word. And so that word has to have this central place. There is no moving forward without the word. And so God is offering here to restore the word and it'll be exactly the way it looked the first time. Uh, There was no room for improvement, so there will be no changes. Now, in this case, we also have to be mindful that Moses is the one that God invites to come, but he's just representative of God's people. He is going to voice what they all feel. He's going to hear what they all need to know. But there is no such representation in our day. Even on Father's Day, fathers can't do this for their children. The children must make this decision on their own. And fathers must make this decision on their own. Everyone in any condition of life, this is an individual thing. It is a personal fellowship available between you and God. There are no combinations. There is no group here. The Lord invites you to come. And that begins by preparing yourself with the word. It's in the word of God that God reveals his character, who he is, and his will, what he wants, what he expects of you, what you have to know, what you have to do in order to have a part in this relationship. His word is essential for instruction, for cleansing, and for conforming to what God wants you to be. Verses 2 and 3, this invitation extends to the call to present yourself to the Lord. He says, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai 
and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Present yourself to the Lord. Be ready to meet the Lord. Be ready for a personal interaction between you and a holy God. This interaction is, uh, is crucial. And so he asks that you try to avoid all distractions. In verse 3, no one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. As best you can, you need a time with God. If that can't be without any other persons available, you've got to take whatever measures you can to make this between you and him alone. That varies in individual circumstances. Uh, the, the call here is to do your best. To come to Mount Sinai, Moses had a climb to make. It took some effort. It might take some effort for you to carve out the time, the place, the space that is necessary for you to have a meeting with God. When should that meeting take place? The reference here is to uh, early in the morning. In fact, uh, in verses 4 and 5, Moses responds to this invitation, uh, demonstrating the, what, uh, what we need to do in response, and that is in response to his call, you come. And you do what God says. Moses prepares the two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. Key phrase there, do what God says, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The two tablets at this moment are blank. Truth comes only from God by revelation. As he reveals the truth, that's how you know the truth. You read it in his word. Thankfully, our Bibles are not blank. But they might as well be blank if you don't open it. If you don't look there. If you aren't interested in knowing who is this God. What does he expect of me? What do I need to change in my life? You commit yourself then to do what God says. When should it take place? Well, if you are responding to a particular sin, this needs to take place, this meeting, as soon as you come to realize it. If you're not aware of a particular offense against God that you have committed, then the meeting takes place the very next morning. Every morning. You begin each day with God. You, you meet with God at a time, and it doesn't matter what your schedule is. Doesn't matter how early you have to get up to go to work or to fulfill your responsibilities. Whatever time it takes 
to accomplish your other things, you get up a little bit earlier. Okay, that's not too hard to calculate. And at that meeting, you are presenting yourself to the Lord. You commit yourself to do what God says and make this fellowship real. And then verse 5, you also come ready to hear what God speaks. Moses arrived at the top of the mountain And verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That portrays an, an actual meeting. Although God, of course, doesn't have a material body. Apparently there was glory for for Moses to see, and he couldn't even handle all of that. That's all part of this meeting, although our passage doesn't describe that glory and and God covering uh, Moses in the cleft of the rock. That's all uh, part of this account, just not these particular verses. This meeting that takes place is a real meaning, meaning even though there is no visible representation of God. When you arise to meet with God, he comes. He always comes. He's eager himself for that meeting. Verse 5 also includes the phrase that he proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's like a preclude to what is going to follow in the next few verses. Putting the focus where that meeting has to have it. It's on the Lord. The name of the Lord isn't just God pronouncing the sound of his name. It is God describing the character that his name represents. And that is exactly what you need to know at that moment. You need to know this God. That's a lifetime ambition. A lifetime desire, God, help me to to know more about you today. And so we are not only satisfied with every little increment of knowledge, we are near to overwhelmed by it. Every bit of knowledge about God we have to digest and appreciate and put into practice, respond to that truth about God in a way that honors him. God is willing to graciously descend. This is God's condescension to meet with you. What's your part? Will you be there to meet with him? That's the decision you have to make. This daily meeting with God begins with his word. Let God speak. And God will give you opportunity then to respond to him. That's what's going on in verses 6 through 9, where we find out what 
we should expect God to say when we open his word each morning. Verses 6 through 9, the Lord reveals the basis for this fellowship. God sets the terms. God decides how this is going to work. This is his gracious plan for a relationship with sinful people. We've got to be amazed at that. A holy God is willing to have relationship and even fellowship with sinful people. That is a staggering truth. So we aren't surprised that it requires that we know how this works. Well, God's character itself determines our fellowship with him. Verses uh, 6 and 7, we'll start, of course, in verse 6, where uh, who God is makes fellowship possible. Here God highlights part of who he is, his name, and here are the aspects of who he is that, is partic- that are particularly important at this point. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, don't miss how astounding this is. This is God himself describing himself and highlighting these particular characteristics. He passed before Moses and he proclaimed this, the Lord, the Lord doubled here to make no mistake who this is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God merciful and gracious. God's mercy means that he withholds what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment for sin. No, I'm not going to give that, he says. His grace, he bestows what we don't deserve. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve his condescension. But he's gracious. A God merciful and gracious Slow to anger. We know how challenging that is. How how hard it is for us when somebody else has done something wrong against us. We rise up in anger. But God is slow to anger. This God is abounding in steadfast love faithfulness when there's a relationship there he is loyal to that relationship it's a loving loyalty that's who God is that's all just part of his character this is not God acting apart this is God being God you couldn't imagine a better God than this abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's patient, he's loyal, 
It is all these truths that give the sinner hope. I can actually talk with this God without him striking me dead for who I am and what I've done. You see, who God is makes fellowship possible. But verse 7 tells us another crucial truth. Keeping in mind and even reminding us here in so many words that the issue here is sin. The presence of sin, our practice of sin, our need to do something about that sin. Well, if who God is makes fellowship possible, how God responds to sin, that is what he does, makes repentance essential. This fellowship cannot move forward. It will not move forward without you turning from the very sin that has affected your fellowship with God. So we have two prospects described for us in verse 7. They're quite the opposite of each other. And it's, uh, it's right here at the heart of this verse that, uh, and I'm sure you felt this as we read through this passage earlier in the service. Whoa, what's... What's going on here? What is verse 7 all about? There's something ominous. There's something that almost seems like it doesn't work with the kind of God he just described in verse 6. How can that be the same God? Well, let's look at this, and I want to make sure that you get here the clear distinction between the two possibilities. The first one is in the first part of verse 7. He says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, there's a, there's a fatherhood aspect to those first verses, uh, first words of verse 7 that are a little bit obscure. There are parallel passages where God says essentially the very same thing. And there's one in particular that really crystallizes this. Makes it clear that he's talking here not about thousands of people can take advantage of this opportunity. But he's talking about particularly, which is why I picked this passage here on Father's Day. He's talking about fathers taking the first option, the one he's describing in these verses. And if he does, what is that option? Let's let's, let's clarify that first. What's the option in the first part of verse 7? Let's keep it in the realm of a father at this point, but this works the same for all of us, everybody, whatever your station in life. If a father has committed sin against God, but then encounters God and considers the opportunity to restore that fellowship or to establish that relationship for the first time, if that's the need. If that father 
turns from his sin, asks for God's forgiveness, what does God do? He forgives. And we have three different words for sin here. He forgives iniquity. That word emphasizes the deviation that a sinful choice is. It's, it's twisted. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. That portrays sin as a violation a violation of responsibility, a violation of a, of a covenant, of a relationship. But God forgives that too. And then it's just the word uh, uh, sin, the third one in that list. And the word, that word, though, is not bland. It, it describes sin as a failure. Put it all together and you've, all three terms for sin represent every possibility of, of what you might have done against God and against his word. And how does God respond when he hears confession, repentance, and a request for forgiveness? He forgives. He forgives it all. But he does one more thing, and that's the part in the very beginning of verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Again, that's not just, this is an opportunity that thousands of people can take advantage of. This is much more focused. This is a promise that if a father makes that choice, and of course by extension a mother or anyone else, with, uh, with authority or a representation role in a home or elsewhere. But particularly here, the focus is on fathers. If a father makes that right choice, takes that first option, turns from sin, then the promise here is that for a thousand generations... His family will continue to reap the blessing of his choice. We won't take the time to turn there now, but if you want to consider Deuteronomy 7.9 is the parallel passage, has parallel wording here that clarifies that we're talking about generations, a father's descendants. How many descendants? A thousand generations worth. It's it's beyond imagination. That many generations, and you get to number 999, and God says, you've got an ancestor, and he chose to walk with me, and on that basis, I bless that generation too. In fact, the uh, indication it seems to be he's not even going to stop at a thousand. Dads, look at the opportunity you've got. You choose to turn from sin. And God has innumerable blessings. I want to put it this way. 
If fathers walk with God, their children will thrive. Now, they also have their own choice to make. It doesn't mean every father who makes the right choice is going to have children making the right choice. But they will have more opportunity to do that than if you choose the other option. What's the other option? That's the rest of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Does that sound like a contradiction? He just said, I'll forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Well, who's not guilty? Who's not guilty is the one who just chose the first option. Yes, guilty in that they committed sin, but not guilty because God has forgiven it. So this is now the second option where someone says, I don't think so. I'm going to continue in that sin. I'm going to follow that course. He will by no means clear the guilty. You don't get forgiveness just because God can. You get forgiveness because you ask for it. If you fail to do that or you refuse to take that first option, that is a decision to follow a sinful course of life. And God will not only not clear the guilty, the one who did it, here's the disturbing part of this principle. He also visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. What's God doing here? He's doing something very simple but very powerful. He's giving fathers a reason, an additional reason besides everything else, to choose option one. To choose to turn from sin. An option that is always available. You could think of something you did wrong and never asked forgiveness for 20 years ago, and he'll forgive you now. It's always available. You can always experience the character of God that he describes in the first part of verse 7, as well as even verse 6. But if a father chooses to stubbornly follow his own way, I am going to sin. I'm going to continue doing the wrong thing. And God will punish his children. That's the significance of the word visit. He will punish the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. But here's here's the grace of our God. Whereas you make the right choice and the blessings continue for a thousand generations. The wrong choice, the impact of that on your family, ooh, even one generation is awful, but it stops at four. 
That's a gracious God. Even in the face of stubborn sin. The message here is clear. If fathers decide to walk with God, their children will receive God's blessing. But if a father stubbornly follows a selfish, sinful course of life, the children will feel the effects. This is real. It's not theoretical. This is who God is. This is what God does. You see, God's character determines fellowship. Verses 8 and 9, your decision determines fellowship as well. How you respond to this truth about God, that will determine your relationship with him, whether you have fellowship. And let's just dispel all concern right now. If anybody is thinking about, oh, boy, I think I had a pretty wicked grandfather. Oh, no, I wonder what... Don't try to assign things that go wrong in your life. I bet that's granddad. I'm still paying the price. Okay. That's not God's point. This is not a message to children to regret. This is a call for even children to do exactly what this passage calls for and what Moses in his representative capacity portrays for us in verses 8 and 9. What God had just said, these hard things at the end of verse 7, is not fate. Keep in mind the emphasis of this passage. God forgives. Doesn't matter what your ancestors may have done to offend God. You get to start over. Moses is representing the right response here as an example for all of us. But the reality that how you decide to respond to God will determine fellowship. You can change the possibility of fellowship into a daily reality. Here's how. First of all, verse 8, commit yourself to God's glory. That's what's at stake here. You deprive God of glory by sin. You commit yourself to God's glory by responding to this opportunity for restored fellowship. So Moses does that. In verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You see, this is expressing your grateful devotion to God. God, what what a merciful, gracious God you are. I devote myself to bring you honor, the honor that you deserve. That's the right response to God's self-disclosure and response to his invitation for fellowship. Commit yourself to his glory. And then second, verse 9, in in this verse, 
portrays Moses uh, in the position that we all need to follow. Submit yourself to his mercy. This involves confessing who you are, what you've done, turning from sin, seeking his forgiveness. Here's how verse 9 says it. It says, if now I have found favor in your sight, and, and there's no wondering in that if, God's favor is available. O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. You see, that's in direct response to what we saw early in chapter 33, where God said, I'm not going to go. Not under these conditions. I'm not going with you. You're on your own. Oh, Lord, please go with us. I want that personal relationship. I need that fellowship every day. I need the help that comes, the grace you make available through this connection that we have every day. May the Lord go in the midst of us. I want that fellowship. But here's the confession. It is a stiff-necked people. Moses is speaking for himself and for all of us. God, this is not a commitment that I'm never going to sin again as much as that's what I want. I know my heart. I'll be tempted again. God, forgive me. I know I'm going to stumble again. But again, I will come back in repentance. It's a stiff-necked people. I'm a fallen human being. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. This is expressing your utter dependence upon him and the very mercy and grace that characterize our God. And you're claiming it as your own. Here we are on Father's Day where every father is hearing how good they are What a wonderful blessing they are. And every father is thinking, yeah, well, (laughs) could be better. Wish I was. What does it take to be a good father? This passage today has a pretty simple formula. Meet with God each day and walk with him. Meet with God each day and walk with him all day long. Now, that's not just good for fathers. That's the pattern that fathers then set for every person. This pattern works for everyone. Each day, turn from sin. Each day, commit yourself to walk with him. 
And if you've never experienced that before because you've never come to Christ, that is the first step. And you can take that step today. You can choose to trust Jesus Christ as the one who is able to bring you into relationship with a holy God. We're going to close our service in just a moment. And part of that closing process will give you, if you don't know Christ as Savior, will give you the opportunity to leave where you're sitting, go to one of our offices over in this area, and have someone open God's word with you. Let them show you how you can walk with God through forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we confess that we are unworthy to walk with you, unworthy to experience personal fellowship with you, Father, thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness. Father, it's on the basis of who you are that we approach. We ask for your help. We ask, Father, for forgiveness. We ask for grace to turn from sin and to walk with you every day. Father, would you help us to remember to do that every morning? In Jesus' name, amen.